Greetings, friends. Welcome to Critically Acclaimed, the film review podcast where, uh, well, we, we changed our, our, uh, our opening spiel, didn't we? Stuff and things happen to <laughs> movies and people. Where, uh, where William and I get together to review movies uh, from the uh, from the highfalutin to the mind pollutant. And everything uh, betwixt and, and between. Everything in between. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I am a film critic of uh, no renown whatsoever. Uh, and with me, as always, is a critic of some renown. Oh my gosh. Whitney, you swear to fucking Christ, dude. <laughs> and my phone is making noises. Uh, introduce yourself, William. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. And we are here this week to talk about a bunch of movies. Oh boy, are we reviewing some movies. Such movies <laughs> shall we review. Some enthusiasm, please. Uh, yeah, we are reviewing the various films. Uh, oh, well. Spiral from the Book of Saw. Those Who Wish Me Dead from the Book of Eli. The oh, Woman well, it, in the it Window. Is, it is based on a book, so okay. it's, it is from a book. Okay, The Woman in the Window from the Book of Drop Dead Gorgeous. What? You know that movie, Drop Dead Gorgeous? Yeah, I, I saw it in theaters back in the was day. Was Amy Adams in that? Oh, I think it was one of her first movies, actually, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Mainstream, The Killing of Two Lovers, and Friedberry. Okay. Yeah. Sounds good. Uh, <laughs> this is a catch-up from last week. Uh, we actually uh, had to delay last week because of you know various scheduling and health issues. So we're back. We, here we are back on track, uh, despite our... Very sloppy opening here, uh, but we are back on track, we assure you. Uh, but we also, we have those films, that's a, a compilation of two weeks, and we have our streaming club, we're finally getting to that one. So, yeah. what are we reviewing at our streaming club, William? Yeah, well, again, every week on our, uh, well, every episode, anyway, uh, <laughs> on our, we're sorry. Yeah. Every episode on our Critically Acclaimed streaming club, we have our patrons over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Uh, vote for a film that at least one of us hasn't seen before, or at the very least, hasn't seen since they were like a little kid. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, we we watch it and review it, and it's a whole thing. And uh, this week, we're talking about Takeshi Ike's 13 Assassins, a samurai epic from 2010, which somehow flew under my radar, even though that is totally my jam <laughs> well takashi miike is totally my jam i've seen a lot of takashi miike films most of them are good uh they're at least all uh worthy of discussion yeah he never fuse the phone it in does he here in the united states he's probably best known for a lot of his horror work uh, uh, audition i think is his most popular film here in the united states certainly he's most celebrated uh, anyway yeah. yeah uh but he's done some other really bonkers movies i'm very fond of his 2003 film gozu and yeah 13 assassins Kind of an homage to Kurosawa in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. uh, and was... it's a remake of a non-Kurosawa film as well. But oh, it is, okay. it's it's a it's an ode to the history of samurai cinema. Yeah, yeah, and uh, might be his biggest slickest film, uh, and we'll talk about that a little bit later in this episode. But uh, why don't we talk about some of the new releases, including one I didn't get to see because it's theaters only and I'm not back in theaters just yet. So uh, I need you to tell me all about the ninth Saw film. How does how does Saw 9 stack up against the previous eight? Uh, if you're familiar with the Saw franchise, you'll know that differentiating between Saw movies gets a little tricky after a while. And the reason is this. Uh, what started off as a twisty, turny, weird 
uh, twist on the serial killer genre in which a uh, a villain kidnaps people and puts them through really uh, gratuitously violent torture devices that are designed not to kill them, but to force them to go to great extremes in order to save their own lives, in order to discover their will to live. Sometimes they have to uh, grievously injure themselves. Often they have to grievously injure themselves. Yeah, or some somebody way. they love yeah, or, or something or, like that. Or hurt somebody or choose some or like kill somebody else. Yeah, yeah. That, that sort of thing. Basically, yeah. It's about uh, basically proving you're testing your might, proving your worthiness. And sometimes they get really judgy. Uh, after a couple of films of that, they started getting extremely elaborate to the extent that Saw 3 through 7 are full of flashbacks and revelations and plot elements that don't get resolved for multiple films. New serial killers become the bad guys, and some of them are good serial killers, and some of them are bad serial killers. And the original serial killer is still doing stuff even though they're dead. Like, it's extremely complicated. To the extent that I actually only recommend watching the Saw movies if you're binging them. You have to watch the well. I recommend were, getting, uh, I recommend trying to get through them all in a weekend. Like none of them are more than like an hour and forty minutes. Like just burn through them. The first saw came out, and the first saw is actually not great. Uh, in that, it, even the first one is really convoluted. There's like yeah, flashbacks within flashbacks, and the police have all of these extra stories going on while the serial killer is doing their stuff. It's not a simple setup and payoff kind of a movie. It's yeah. actually really difficult to follow. Just the first one. Yeah. Uh, and I guess and uh, I know what happens in it, and I recently rewatched it, and I still found it hard to follow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and you know, even, even with the context of the the following eight movies, yeah, uh, and uh, but it was a big enough of a hit that uh, the filmmakers really rushed a sequel into production. It was like next year, year after year after year, and in fact, each Saw movie came out on Halloween, uh, one a year for seven years. Uh, the six. Uh, I think there was a bit of a break between six and three D. Oh, was there? Okay. There was, a little, there was like a one-year break or something, I think, between 6 and 3D. But oh, okay. the first six of them were just cranked out. Yeah, we're, we're in a six-year period. And it was kind of a tradition. Uh, this is kind of what I grew up with as a, a child. There was there seemed to be a Friday the 13th, Halloween, or Nightmare on Elm Street. Almost every like every month yeah. uh, when I was a young child. They seemed really, really common. Uh, and I wished for a return to that. And I was really bemoaning the success of Saw because I wasn't interested in the series at the time. And I'm still not. Like, I've seen them all, mm. kind of interested, but I feel like they're pretty aggressively dour. They're no, very it, pessimistic movies, and they're not really a fun watch. I, I actually like them more than you. I think okay. uh, I think they are a fun watch in that what we are watching more than anything else is we are watching, like, filmmakers with a lot to prove mm. try to show off. And okay. I think that can be fun. I think when you look at the original Saw, as hopelessly convoluted as it is, that is James Wan, who would go on to bigger and better things, mm. and Lee Winnell, who would go on to bigger and better things. That's basically their student film. Like, they were young, hungry filmmakers who were trying to put every possible interesting thing they could into a low-budget horror movie. And it shows. There's, like, way too many elements in that storyline. Like, why the why do we need the, the doll mask and the pig mask? Like, it's all very... It's all just, like, throwing things in there to see what'll stick. Mm. And it's impressive how much of it does. And I think that kind of energy is what I look for from a Saw movie. I look for 
what kind of amazing contraption are you going to show us that's just yeah. going to blow my fucking mind? What kind of hilariously elaborate twist are you going to throw in here that's going to be like, oh my god, oh, you guys. I was I was supposed to get in the coffin full of broken glass. Exactly. Okay, yeah. like That's one of my favorite That's one of my favorite endings of a Saw movie. Yeah. That's a great ending. I think it's the end of Saw 5? Five? five. Yeah. Okay. Five. I, f- I find 5 and 6 to be very underrated. I've, um, uh, I've, I've projected Saw... Like, at uh, Saw four and five, yeah, uh, at the New Beverly, there was double feature of Saw movies, and they chose four and five for some reason. Nice. And they brought the filmmakers in, and and they actually asked the audience, "Why did you want to see these two? These are the worst ones." I disagree. Uh, I think they're fun. I think they're right. really crazy. I think those are the movies that were right after. Spoiler alert: Jigsaw dies in Saw three, mm. and then they kept going. <laughs> And in fact, uh, they they wanted to make sure of that because Saw Four opens with his autopsy, like and it's they see really his, bo- vivid. his body being cut apart. So yeah, yeah. he is definitely dead. There's and then, no ambiguity. And then you realize that the legacy of Jigsaw is being perpetuated by acolytes. Mm-hmm. He had people who were his followers, his proteges. Well, and people who were helping him set up those really elaborate death traps. Yeah, he couldn't do one it all person could do all that exactly. Which which makes sense actually. Like yeah, one person couldn't do all that. Mm. <laughs> so cool. You've played fair. Um, and so that actually gives the Saw franchise like a lot of freedom to go on forever just because there is not necessarily just one killer. Not like in a scream way where sometimes there's more than one at a time. It's just like, no, there's a, the idea that there's just a copycat jigsaw is totally fair game. Yeah. Constantly. So Spiral from the Book of Saw uh, is the ninth film in the series. There was the original seven there was an attempt at a reboot of sorts called Jigsaw from um, uh, the Spirig brothers that did not work. Mm. Like one good kill in it, but it's not an impressive film. Uh, it's, and it's an unimpressive slasher movie. It's not very interesting. I, I consider it, it, it arguably the worst of the series. Um, but uh, watchable. Okay. None of the Saw movies are like unwatchable or anything like that. Just the the thing is that the, the least interesting. And now we have Spiral from the Book of Saw, which is at the very least a different perspective on Saw. And it comes from uh, director Darren Lynn Bousman, who had directed Mm. Saw 2, 3, and 4. And I actually think Darren Lynn Bousman deserves, for better or worse, a lot of the credit for solidifying what Saw was. Because again, the original Saw is a lot of everything. Mm. Just all like thrown into a pot and they barely even stirred. Mm. I think Darren Lynn Bousman, especially with Saw 2, Helped codify what it is. We actually mm-hmm. got to know the bad guy. We had to got the philosophy of Jigsaw. We got the structure that we would yeah. follow, where there would be people in a trap, and then we would follow concurrently the people trying to rescue them, uh, rather than just jump around constantly. Uh, really cleaned it up. And um, he's not doing that here. Spiral from the Book of Saw is a cop movie, like mm-hmm. just through and through. Okay. And we only ever see it from the cot's perspective. We don't see oh, it from the villain's fine. perspective, which right. is very unusual in a soft film. Hmm. Um, Chris Rock uh, plays a detective uh, who is not popular within his precinct because 12 years prior, he ratted out his own partner for shooting a witness to police brutality. Hmm. Uh, so now no one in the police trusts him because, yeah, you wouldn't want to trust a cop who cares about the law and stuff. So, well, I feel like, I don't know why we're coming back to saw, 
So the first saw came out in, in like two, like the mid two thousands, like two thousand four, two thousand five. Yeah, early two thousands. Yeah. yeah. Um, this was, and that was a time that was during the George W. Bush administration. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a lot of uh, like war and violence. This was very a very post nine eleven film where yeah. we're all. Uh, you know, images of torture started leaking into the media uh, because of the war, and all, all of these uh, violence was on people's minds. And you yeah. can see it in the horror films of the time. They are all very, uh, very dour and nihilistic and yeah. pessimistic movies. Torture and fluorescent lights—that's what it was all about. Yeah, exactly. There's yeah. a lot, a lot of torture movies, and I think the Saw movies were a because the the mo of the Jigsaw Killer was you have to test yourself through this crucible of violence. Mm. We are, we live in this violent world and if we can serve only by surviving violence, can we prove ourselves as survivors? And that's a very post nine 11 concept mm-hmm. uh, that we're, we were exploring again and again. And so I understand why they would latch on to that particular epoch of cinema. Sure. I feel like we're not living through that anymore. No, we're so not. why are we going through Jigsaw at this point? Excellent question. Yeah. And uh, here's what the movie has got for us. All right. Uh, it is a post Jigsaw world. There hasn't been, a, it's been a long time since the Jigsaw killings. Mm. Um, in fact, other than a quick like mugshot of John Kramer played by Tobin Bell, there's very little reference to the original films other than there was a Jigsaw killer. Okay. Um, it's been quite a few years since the Jigsaw slangs and now they've started up again. But the difference this time is all of the victims are corrupt cops whose torture devices relate to their level of corruption. So, like, if someone right. uh, constantly perjured themselves in order to send people, throw people to jail, then their torture will involve, like, a tongue flaying. Uh, if uh, someone was constantly covering things up, boom, they're going to be covered in hot wax. That kind of deal. These are not mm. super clever. I'm going to be perfectly frank. As far as like clever death traps go, I think this is maybe at the bottom of the heap when it comes um, to the Saw movies. It's just that I'm here for the creeping, rusty, looks like a tool video kind of machinist's wet dream kind of aesthetic. To, no, to actually, they, they've changed it completely and now it looks like a damn James Elroy novel come to life. It's very, oh. very cop-centric. It's about mm. the police. It is about a supposedly good cop played by mm. Chris Rock, his new partner played by uh, Max Minghella, mm. who's a young rookie. Mm. Uh, and, I like uh, Max Minghella. He's good. Mm. Uh, and Chris Rock is really good in this too, I'll give you that. Um, and uh, it's about them trying to solve these murders while no one in the police precinct is helping him. And every time someone says, ah, oh, fuck Chris Rock, I'm not going to help him solve the case. I'm going to do it my own way. They end up getting captured by Jigsaw and murdered. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, there's a whole bunch of red herrings. Who's good, Who's the actual killer? What's the actual deal? I'll say this right now. The identity of the killer or killers could not be more obvious. <laughs> like, it's seriously one of the worst I'm, twists I've seen in a movie in a while. I'm Officer Obvious Killer, and here's my partner, Obvi- Officer it's, Red Herring. It's not even that. It's just, um, hey, what have we seen consistently throughout the movie? Like, what has the movie consistently shown us? Mm. And then ask yourself, okay, what did they not show us this time? That's the, that's, pay attention to that. That's like rudimentary mystery storytelling. Like, it's really just, flat mm-hmm. uh obviously this is a movie that is trying to use the jigsaw uh, uh framework the saw movie uh uh concept to discuss a serious social issue which is of course police corruption timely uh, timely this movie was supposed to come out last year 
And in the year that passed, we have left this movie's conversation in the dust. <laughs> it, the, the idea for the conversation is sound, but the actual conversation the movie wants to have about it mm. is way off. Like, for example, there's this whole thing about how maybe Jigsaw thinks Chris Rock's cop is the only good cop on the force. And I'm like, okay, fine. If that were the case... I think Jigsaw would have had a problem with the scene where Chris Rock interrogates a suspect and when he breaks his leg and exposes a bone, Chris Rock like pours alcohol on it in order to get like information out of him. I'm like, that's not a good cop. No, that's a that's maybe not as bad a cop as the other cops, but that's not a good cop. That's that's bad. Hmm. That that deserves a Jigsaw punishment. I think any other movie, there's this hilarious line of dialogue uh, where and not in the good way where Chris Rock is uh, look, looking over what's happening. And he says in a very serious tune, uh, uh, tone, um, John Kramer never targeted cops. And I'm like, that is not what Darren Lynn Bousman's Saw 2 was about. So, he puts the cops to the test in that one. Well, Saw 4, he puts cops to the test, although mm. that was also Michael Hoffman. But in any case, uh, but regardless, yeah, the Donnie Wahlberg character in Saw 2, he was like the main like yeah. target of That's Jigsaw right. in that one. And he's a cop. So it's weird that a Darren Lynn Bousman film forgot that, mm. <laughs> considering that was Darren Lynn Bousman's breakout film. So that's really <laughs> weird. Um, but they also just, they don't talk about police corruption and police brutality with any mention whatsoever of how that is steeped in, in generations of racism and institutionalized racism. Mm. It's just, oh, the cops just wanted to like catch the bad guys so bad that they let themselves become the bad guys. And I'm like, also, there's... Also, no. <laughs> also, no. There's also, there's also bigger issues people. at hand here. Also, yeah. there's just shittiness and racism and a lot of other problems that are not being addressed at all. And, again, this is not new for the Saw movies. Saw 5 was about a group of corrupt uh, uh, real estate people, and we found out it was actually all about Jigsaw punishing... Uh, um, what do you call it? Um... When uh, when bad, the bad when guys? a neighborhood is ruined, uh, when a neighborhood is ruined, gentrification, gentrification. Oh. It's about jigsaw. I, I, too many syllables. There's <laughs> right. jigsaw punishing gentrification. Saw six is all about uh, jigsaw punishing uh, an insurance uh, a guy whose responsibility was to try to make sure his insurance company didn't pay out to people who needed it if there was any excuse to do so. And it's all about him basically deciding who lives and who dies. And it's actually really on point, and that one still holds up really good. This one doesn't even hold up good from last year, which is really frustrating. Hmm. Um, and that's really what it boils down to for me. is It, it tries to tackle a big t- uh, topic and whiffs it. The kills are actually really muted and not as exciting. There's a couple of good ones, but like n- not nearly the best in the series. Uh, and so what we've got is a cop movie and it's interestingly, it's kind of like an aggressively a nineties cop movie, yeah. like, like, like the bone collector or seven or oh, copycat that, that, like that, that post the silence of the lambs yeah. serial killer. Boom. Really yeah, yeah. dour. Lots of, uh, lots of Tarantino esque dialogue. Like it opens with a scene with uh, Chris Rock giving a speech about how if Forrest Gump came out today, our conversation about it would be entirely different because of how society looks at mm. uh, uh, disability. Um, and all of that's kind of the most interesting part. Like a part of me is almost wondering, like, could this movie usher in a new wave of nineties horror nostalgia 
for that kind yeah. of post Pilots well, of the Lambs. Hmm. Uh, uh, you know, like, oh, who who else here remembers taking lives? Hmm? No one? No. Well, we're going to bring it back anyway. Like, that's that's what Spiral feels like to just, me. Just get Ashley Judd back in any of these things. Maybe oh, she can please. reprise one of her roles. She's so great. Triple Jeopardy. <laughs> <laughs> Along came a, a second spider. She wasn't in Along Came a Spider. She wasn't? No, she was only in Kiss the Girls. Oh, all right. Yeah. So Ashley Judd, for those who may not recall, was for about five, six, seven years... Like the biggest thing in thriller movies. Yeah, she she was your your go to lead for those kinds of films. Yeah, it started with the the movie Kiss the Girls. It went on to Double Jeopardy, and from that point on, man, she just had that genre down. All respect in the world to her too. She made it work, but like I just think it's interesting that like she had a niche right at the turn of the century. Which which one was it? Double Jeopardy, where she was wrongly accused of her husband's murder, and it turned out he faked his own death. Yeah, and that was Double Jeopardy. Yeah, yeah so like the, oh, that's du- right. She goes to jail for murdering her husband. Yeah, but it turns out he faked his own death, which means if she can't be tried for the same crime twice, yeah, she, she might as well w- just kill him. She's within her rights to kill him. Yeah, what's she yeah. gonna do? She can't go to jail again, which is. Not how that works, but it is a fun premise, isn't it? No, no, not at all. But yeah. I remember liking that one, but there's not a lot of details I remember. So Spiral, Spiral, I, I wish I could get entirely on Spiral's wavelength. I really do. I like right. elements of it. I think it's wonderfully shot. The acting's quite good. It's just not very well told. I think it's the script really lets this thing down. It's It's got a good style. Um, It's got a solid premise, and it's just not well developed at all. So it's a bit of a bummer. But it's still kind of watchable. Mm. If you're a Saw fan, I wouldn't miss it. But if you're not, this is not where I begin. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, I saw a horror movie. Yeah. I saw a movie called Fried Berry. Oh, is this the movie where they fried berry? Uh, well, it's a, a movie about a guy named Barry who is fried. And fried as in uh, zonked out of his mind on drugs. Um ah. Fried Berry, it's on Shudder. Um, it's a South African horror film. The t- titular Barry is played by a guy named Gary Green, who um, he looks a lot like uh, Mr. Filch from the Harry Potter movies, like that really creepy caretaker guy. Oh, like really just grizzled and yeah, grimy like, uh, and stringy and, hair. And and he is a horrible human being. Uh, uh, he lives with, uh, who I assume is his common-law wife and her child, who may or may not be his child, but he berates them and abuses them both. He uh, is a complete womanizer. He takes drugs and uh, is just a, a rotten human being. One evening, he encounters a space alien. He's taken aboard a spacecraft, and the space aliens occupy his body. Or maybe they just sort of take his shape and uh, return to Earth. And all of a sudden, he finds himself trying to uh, just sort of explore humanity, this creature, this alien creature, in the form of this low life. He's clearly, like, he has, like, alien physiology because he's like, consumes mm. food a little bit differently and has different biological reactions to the way uh, the world works around him. Yeah. He sees people getting drunk and vomiting in the street, and he's not really sure what it is. And you think there's going to be a moment where he starts to eat the vomit because he's not really sure what exactly it is. Classy. And the world responds to him as if he is, like, has a lot of agency. And I think... <clears throat> The film is exploring, like, from an, object- an objective standpoint, this sort of world of crime and poverty. Mm. 
Uh, and the adventures of Barry get really elaborate. He's not just sort of exploring the town and we get to sort of know this, the city streets and objective conversations, but also he visits a sex worker and uh, impregnates the sex worker and she gives birth immediately. So oh. we know there's some like weird alien thing going on here. Uh, I and, would hope. And then he just sort of like staggers off into the night because he doesn't really understand what has happened. Uh, he ends up being kidnapped by a human trafficker at one point oh, and ends yeah. up and there's this brief episode where it becomes this weird bloody revenge flick against this human trafficker he finds himself in a mental institution at one point and ends up being swept up in this big mental institution uprising this movie just steams along Sounds there's it. a lot of incident in this film uh, but it doesn't feel really crazy. It actually does have this weird kind of almost classic literature picaresque structure to it uh, where we're so you're saying it's profound. I don't know how profound it is, but I sense that it's scraping up against profundity. It's almost like a, a like a douchebag. Uh, douchebag uh, no, Candide. Now take that sentence. <laughs> a douchebag Candide is where it is. Um, okay, now that's a title. <laughs> there you go. Call, call it douchebag Candide. That, that's a fine. Fried berry is, is good enough. Yeah. Uh, but I appreciate how the filmmakers are really trying to give us something really aggressively sleazy. And mm. I love a good aggressively sleazy movie. Uh-huh. And trying to mix in this kind of objective standpoint. It was just about this horrible human being who went through all of these adventures. That's not so, that's not an interesting story. No, it's just, it's just a horrible human being. Yeah. That's, there's nothing to that. If it's a space alien who has not taken the body of an average human being, or uh, in the case of something like under the skin, uh, somebody who looks like Scarlett Johansson. Mm. And we get to sort of explore the way the world reacts to somebody who looks like Scarlett Johansson. And indeed in that movie, they used some legit documentary footage mm. where Scarlett Johansson uh, was just driving a truck around and would just drive up to people and say, Hey, want to get in my truck? And we get to see an actual stranger react to Scarlett Johansson saying, get in my truck. Like, uh, yeah. yes, but no. Um, what is happening here? Am I being pranked? Are you who I think you are? Uh, fried berry, something similar, but with like really grindhouse kind of movie tropes. Honest, we get to look at these things yeah. f- from the outside, like looking in and how, how would that look? How would an alien judge us if all it had of us, all the only knowledge it had of us was grindhouse movies on a scale of Mm. zero (laughs) to greasy strangler. (laughs) How, how, how greasy and and twisted is this? It's, it's pretty low on the greasy strangler scale. It's, it's, I put it on like at a three. It's, it's it's not approaching greasy strangler level. This is actually palatable. Of of absurd weirdness. Yeah. I I, I know a lot of people love greasy strangler. That is not a critique on them. It's just greasy strangler is trying to be off putting and you're either into that or you're not. You're either super into that or you're not. And that's all there is to it for as far as Reese Strangler is concerned. I want to fill the world with grease. The Greasy Strangler is is an awesome movie, by the way. Yeah. And it, it is one of the like most filthy off-putting movies I think I've seen. Mm-hmm. Uh but in a way that you can tell that the filmmakers are really into it. Mm-hmm. I've seen some filthy off-putting movies that are just filthy and off-putting. You know, yeah. Human Centipedes or uh, Street Trash is one that I have never been able to get behind. No, it's barely a film, really. Mm. It's just an excuse for visual effects. I, 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 And there's a market for that. Mm. Don't get me wrong. Mm. But 
Yeah, when no, you for, don't, when you can tell the people who really wanted to tell this story, it's mm. just a totally different entity. And even if you're not into it, I think it's easy to respect. Yeah, the, I think the, you can respect something like Racy Strangler. The, the filmmakers clearly have something on their mind uh, with Fried Berry. There, there's okay. there's an idea here. It's not necessarily a very sophisticated idea. How uh, you know humanity is just sort of this fool stumbling through life. Uh, but at least it's an idea. Yeah. At, at least there's something here other than just trying to shock us. Mm-hmm. There, there's more than just shock going on in something like Fried Berry. Yeah. Uh, and I really admire it. I really admire its sleaze, but I really admire uh, thoughtful sleaze. Mm. I wish I could admire the woman in the window. Oh, golly, yeah. The woman <laughs> in the window is a new film on Netflix. It's supposed to be a theatrical release and ended up getting shuffled around. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a Fox film. It's a Fox film. It's a, a post-Disney purchase Fox film that Disney didn't want to release. Yeah, Disney was like, it's, well, and, and I can tell why, having mm. seen it. Uh, but it's also just it's not their brand. They don't really want to mm. be a part of it. Uh, it is a new thriller, psychological thriller from Joe Wright, who, of course, directed films like uh, Atonement and Hannah. And mm. um, it stars Amy Adams. I, I greatly admire Joe Wright. I, 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 like, I, like, I think his Pride and Prejudice is really, really good. I That's think his, a good Pride and Prejudice. I think his yeah. Anna Karenina is not as good. I, uh, but I, I appreciate it's it's mm-hmm. it's dazzle. Mm-hmm. It's got very uh, uh, ambitious yeah. imagery in that film. Yeah, he did Darkest Hour, the Winston Churchill movie, which is serviceable. Three star Oscar uh, bait. Yeah. Uh, I rewatched and actually came to appreciate his Peter Pan movie. I don't understand you <laughs> at all. I find that movie blisteringly unwatchable I, I i think it's actually colorful and energetic it is um miles ahead of something like steven spielberg's hook well, in terms uh, of quality that's and that's a low bar but regardless and i know i just offended some people by saying that i've never liked hook I, hook, I've, hook is not good i'm gonna okay? say this right hook, now there's hook good, is a bad movie here's what i'll say there's good stuff in hook mm-hmm. i think dustin hoffman's and uh, uh bob hoskins are very good in hook mm. i think the production design is very good in hook I think I, I don't like the production. I, I think it's. Like, I think yeah. it's not my favorite version mm-hmm. of Peter Pan, but I think it's a good looking movie. It's not told very well, and I remember. And this is one of those movies where everyone was so into it. I felt like I had to sort of get on board. But I remember seeing Hook as a as a kid, mm-hmm. and seeing like, oh, there's the there's the one fat kid in the kids in Never Neverland. And uh, we're going to roll him into pirates as though he is not but a boulderous object. He's, and it's that, that's, isn't that that's, funny? That's his move. And he's, I remember he's think, bowling ball. Yeah, and I remember thinking to myself as you know, a chubby kid, mm. thinking, "Wow, I feel dehumanized." I did not have the terminology for that, <laughs> but that is what I was feeling, mm. and I thought it was really shitty. Mm. And it's just that kind of like '90s shitty, like that kind of like, "Oh no. yes, it's gonna be the Lost Boys. We're gonna be skateboarding and yelling it's made-up yeah. buzzwords like bangerang." It's it's really quote cool, which Steven Spielberg should never try to do. No, he's uh, very and, classical in his approach to everything. Uh, yeah. uh, and and it's it has that kind of bold, overproduced uh, artificiality that was really hip at the time, which I can admire. There's actually a lot of really fakey looking '90s films that I like, but well, that's not one of them. It's also a film that I feel like in trying to like reinvent Peter Pan. Like what if Peter Pan grew up and then had to return to never Neverland? Mm. What they managed to do is give you a Peter Pan movie with almost none of the Peter Pan stuff you want. Mm. Cause it's all him fighting it. Like, and then at the end it's like really short. Like he's only Peter Pan, Peter Pan for a really short amount of time. Yeah. And it's like, 
no. I wanted to see I want to see Spielberg do Peter Pan. Like, can we just do Peter Pan? What the hell? Anyway, I, we're off we're, the beaten path. Joe Wright. Path. So Joe Wright has, we're, we're not talking about the woman in the window because we don't want to. Uh, yeah. Joe yeah. Wright has now made a thriller, question mark, a kind of yeah. psychological thriller type well, of a movie. I, I, it's important to remember that when we're talking about the genre of a movie, quality doesn't enter into it. No. It, genre is based on quality uh sorry, quantitative observation. If it has these elements, it is in that genre. If it does them well, that's a different conversation, which is why you can't say that's not a horror movie, it's not scary. Uh are there a bunch of monsters in it who eat people? Then yeah, oh. Jurassic Park is a horror movie, at least partly. Mm. There's no like clear line, it's uh, got to be all one thing or another, but it's very very clear that the woman in the window is inspired by Alfred Hitchcock. You can tell because they show clips of Alfred Hitchcock movies mm. very subtly. And, and there's a character and subtly, named, there's a character named Jane Russell in it. Well, uh, it's that's not Hitchcock. That's no, but cinema, it's but it's yeah. it's very um, trying trying to show that it's influenced by classic cinema yeah. and in invoking these things clearly wants us to think of this as in line with that type of classic cinema. Yeah, something something old fashioned in a yeah. way. So the movie is about Amy Adams who plays. A woman who is incredibly agoraphobic. She lives in a big, giant-ass brownstone in New York. And uh, apparently she only makes a living by having one tenant who lives in her basement. And, she, and he's played by Wyatt Russell, who is totally wasted in this film. He's a really fun actor. Um, and, and also she's a psychi- psychiatrist. Yeah. Who I think only has one client. No, she has no clients. She's only being uh, uh, visited mm. by her own therapist, played by Tracy Letts. Who, who wrote the screenplay? Was that a Tracy Letts screenplay? It was Tracy Letts screenplay. Oh, well. Joe, Joe Wright, director, Tracy oh. Letts wrote, Tracy Letts wrote a, it. And this it, is one of those movies. And it just belly flopped. This is one of those movies where you look at it on paper and it seems like like a, a headshot. Like, Joe Wright directed it. Academy Award nominated director. I think he was nominated mm-hmm. for Atonement, right? Um, yeah, a celebrated director. Award winning playwright. Wrote the screenplay adapted from a novel. Stars Amy mm-hmm. Adams. Julianne Moore. Gary Oldman, Tracy Letts, <laughs> and Jennifer Jason Lee. Jennifer Jason Lee shows up in this movie. Anthony Mackie shows up in this movie. That's a hell of a cast for such a dud. Now the plot kicks in when we when uh, she is a voyeur. She's looking at her neighbors mm. and she's kind of living vicariously through them. And she has new neighbors across the street. Uh, Gary Oldman. Uh, a, a teenager who's clearly going through some psychological issues, and she recognizes that immediately, and uh, and their mother, and uh, who, who, and she only glimpses the mom briefly, briefly, and then she ends up like spending some time with her, and she's uh, played by Julianne Moore, and uh, then she sees Julianne Moore get murdered in that house, or is she paranoid? And taking the wrong meds and combining them with alcohol, which we do see her doing constantly. And thus, she is merely hallucinating this whole thing. Yeah, is, is she deluding herself? Did she see yeah. something different? And uh, The answers will bore you. <laughs> you'll, you'll be in your seat with your back against the back and your arms on the armrests. And sitting there, you won't be just sitting there watching it. Yeah, wondering why. <laughs> you will uh, not be on the edge. It's really frustratingly straightforward. Even the twists are frustratingly straightforward. Mm-hmm. And the few occasions where Joe Wright attempts to do something different, like there's a particular image when mm-hmm. there's a big revelation 
And Amy Adams oh, like looks through she, her. I'm not going to tell you yeah, what it she, is. She, she turns to the left and she sees something in her apartment that shouldn't be there. Yeah. And it's actually a good bit of filmmaking. Oh, I we mm. in this household, we laughed our asses off at it because it was absurd. It, 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 it was fe- an absurdist piece of poetry. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I guess I'm not going to sneeze. <laughs> Great. <laughs> More surprising than the woman oh. in the window. All right. As much attention <laughs> as the woman in the window. I might sneeze. Oh, I didn't. Okay. Uh, um, yeah, it's it, it's absurd, but you know, I I appreciate that he's at least Joe Wright. That is, is going for some kind of visual flair in this uh, in this film that it essentially feels like a play. Sure, uh, Tracy Tra- 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 Letts is a playwright, and uh, yeah, so it, it feels like it could take place entirely within her apartment. People come in and out and behave in. In one scene, they're really, really erratic, and in another scene, they're really, really well behaved, and you're not really sure mm. how much of this is inherent imagination or not. Yeah, uh, and. Golly, I don't care because yeah. it's not handled very well. No, it's the the character is meant to be really unreliable, but we're not ever in a state of mind where we can be there next to her and really understand what is true to her. Yeah, because her everything about like what she's going through mm. is kept from us as a big reveal later. And I think that's a mistake. And I think mm. that's something that this particular movie, it's calling it shots. It says we want to be spellbound. We want to be Rear Window and Vertigo. We, we're saying we want to be Hitchcock. Um, Hitchcock lets you know who the characters are. And this movie doesn't want to do that. And as a result, instead of being captivated and scared for them and sympathetic with them, you just don't know what to believe. And that's a different kind of filmmaking. Mm. And I don't find that particularly interesting kind of filmmaking a lot of the time. It can be, but I can't think of any examples off the top of my head, so that's not a good sign. Like Mulholland Drive, I think, is one of the few examples. Because it's so surreal, Mm. you can get away with it. But here, this is a thriller where there's nothing to connect to, there's nothing to ground you, uh, and as a result, it's hard to get thrilled. And even on just like a basic level, a lot of the filmmaking here just doesn't read. This has... One of the least effective musical scores I've seen for a movie, especially a thriller, Hmm. in a really long time. We were watching this movie and and we were like, man, this should be thrilling. But it just feels like the musical score is just tooling around at a piano, Hmm. killing time and trying to sort of vaguely keep a mood alive. Hmm. It's not telling the story. It is not like actually part of the narrative and I was shocked to discover at the end of the film that it was by Danny Elfman, mm. who used to be really good at that. Yeah, D- Danny Elfman uh, has his his more recent career, that is to say like the last 15 years or yeah. so, has been really uh, this litany of nondescript scores. And I think he's really proud of that as an artist. Sure. I think he didn't like being associated with sort of the Danny Elfman sound that he's actually best known for still to this day like his work with Tim Burton. Yeah. Uh, But at some point he said, no, I want to be a little bit more of a versatile uh, writer of movie scores. So he wants to be able to have music that kind of sinks into the back. And as such, most of his scores from the last 15 years have been wholly unremarkable. Yeah. Like try to Uh, like, not that the most important thing in a film score is that it is hummable, no. memorable that's not the most important thing it's easy to say that that it is because but it has to evoke some kind and, of mood yeah you know? uh, and like a lot of his stuff i'm like if you ask me to remember like anything about american hustle i'm not gonna remember how effective the score was yeah and, it, and he's even just, done yeah. like various superhero movies like he yeah. did uh, age of ultron it, yeah he did uh, avengers age of ultron he did um the 
uh, Joss Whedon cut of Justice League. Oh, yeah. Uh, Which actually and, incorporated his old Batman theme. And, yeah. and I appreciated that. And he also took uh, cues from John Williams' Superman score as well. So he was yeah. able to sort of like mix together something that he had done in the past and John Williams had done into something that feels a little bit more like like a superhero movie. Yeah. Um, I, I forgot who did the score to the Zack Snyder cut, but that was like a much different animal. Oh, it, it yeah, sounded really, that? really different. Hold on, I'm, I'm going to look that up. That's um, a good it, it, it wasn't Hans Zimmer, but it, it was Zimmer-ish. Yeah, I'm um, fairly sure it, it, it wasn't really, Hans Zimmer, actually. It was really electronic, and there was a lot of buzzing uh, on that. Tom Hulkenborg. It's on Hulkenborg, that's right. Yeah, it wasn't Hans Zimmer. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, the, also known as Junkie XL. Oh, it's Junkie XL. So, who had okay. worked with Hans Zimmer on Man of Steel and okay. Batman v Superman, so there's there's continuity. I, there. I, I preferred that score to. Well, I actually like them both. Actually, the scores to both of the Justice Leagues. Um, but yeah, uh, the Woman in the Window is one of those films that uh, can, uh, to borrow other critics' phrases, uh, one of the uh, films that could only be a failure if a bunch of really talented people got together. Yeah, like this isn't clearly not the kind of failure that is done through a lack of ambition or passion. Yeah, Joe Wright really wanted to make a Hitchcock-like thriller, and a lot of these actors really wanted to play these complex, shifting types of characters. And Danny Elfman really wanted to to throw himself in there and make something that was really kind of uh, you know manipulative and strange. And they're really trying to surprise us. And all of these ambitions, like, sort of just piled into a hole and yeah. laid there. It's it's dumb. The mater- it's not the exciting ma- or interesting. It's the material. I don't, know if it's, yeah. I don't know how much I can blame on the novel and its fundamental storyline or Tracy Letts' screenplay, but it just the basic material of it is so flat. Hmm. It's incredibly flat. And if you like mystery-type stories, and if you are the kind of person who would say... I am the type of person who loves these kinds of movies and you're watching them and you're trying to suss them out as you go, you'll find this one is frustratingly straightforward. Like, um, just, there's really only a handful of twists and they're mm. really telegraphed. Um, so the, and even if they're not, even if you're not even paying that much attention, yeah. you'll know where they come from. Well, there's only so much that can happen. If you've seen a thriller before. There's only so much that can happen and that's what happens. And mm. that's that, really. And... Yeah, I just found it. I found it frustratingly dull. Uh, Amy Adams tries. I mean, God knows she's a brilliant actor, hmm. uh, but she again, she has to for a lot of the movie work with one hand tied behind her back because we are not allowed to be on the same page as her. Yeah, so we're alienated from her the entire time. It's a bad setup for hmm. this kind of a thriller because we need to be. We need to be anchored. Even if you pull that anchor away later, we need to be anchored for a while. Mm. And there's so much of it. There's so many conversations that happen off camera that you don't know if you can trust. There's so many, like, just story elements that people take for granted. And, oh, we shouldn't have taken that for granted, that kind of thing. And it's just, no, tell us what's actually going on and then build on that rather than never let us know what's going on. It's Mm. a rough, rough start. And the movie never recovers from it, like, right from the beginning. Something I found really curious about the existence of this film is it's causing this weird Mandela effect Mm. in people where they think they saw it years ago, even though it's a brand new film. Uh And it's because they're confusing it with The Girl on the Train, which came out in 2016 and starred uh, uh, Emily Blunt. And that, that's another film that is very much that's about like looking out a window and seeing somebody yeah. like day in and day out, seeing the, a girl on a train. Yeah, and, and I, I didn't see that one, actually. So. I, I think I did and I forgot it. Yeah, a lot of people. <laughs> it's, it's one of those movies. Yeah. Uh, 
But I mean, this the, has been done this, before. This like, is this just is, as forgettable. This is a pastiche of Rear Window. It's mm. got a little bit of copycat in there. Like, it's got a lot mm. of really familiar elements, and they never kind of become their own thing. Like, the movie I think of when I think of what Women in the Window wanted to be is a film called The Strange Color of Your Body's Tears. Oh, I haven't seen that one. It's oh, from uh, incredible. Uh, t- uh, Helen, filmmakers. Yeah, uh, Helen Catet and uh, Bruno Forzani. Who have done some amazing movies? Like they're they've basically got like a trilogy of a mare, the strange color of your body's tears, and let the corpses tan, mm. which are some of the best art house thrillers of the last decade. They're just incredible. Um, strange color of your body's tears is another one about uh, neighbors and mysteries and murders, and maybe someone's a serial killer, or maybe this is like a house where all kinds of nightmarish, dreamlike things keep happening in reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and boy, is that a style explosion. <laughs> There's like maybe one shot in this movie that could touch almost any shot. Just pick them at random mm-hmm. from the strange color of your body's tears. It is weird. It is surreal. It is memorable. It's exciting. It's kind of hard to follow, but it's also not trying to be easy to follow. And I think if you're in the mood for what I think this movie was going for in terms of like, we're going to be a cool stylistic exercise. That's the film. If you want to see the, what the, like the pure Hollywood thriller version of this is rear window is still unsurpassed <laughs> and it's still out there. It's not obscure. No, it's you can find rear window. One of the best movies ever made. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, moving on. What do you want to talk about next? Um, let me get. Let me take you through mainstream. Okay, is it a, is uh, it one of those mainstream films I've heard so much about? Uh, mainstream is the latest film from Gia Coppola. Oh, uh, boy, there's a lot of Coppola. Well, there's there's Francis Ford Coppola who kind of spearheaded the whole Coppola family as mm-hmm. a, a film dynasty. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've had his wine. I've, as have I. He's also made a couple of movies. He made a, he made a movie called Twixt once. You might have heard yeah, of that one. The Tetro and 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 a few others. Yeah. Uh, did he do that his, Robin Williams movie, Jack? That was his big one. He, he did do Jack. Wasn't that curious? That yeah. was a weird choice for yeah. Coppola. Um, Francis Coppola directed and, the Godfather movies and the Conversation and, and, and Apocalypse, and Apocalypse Now. Now. And some of the best movies of the 1970s. Yeah. Uh, and, and some very underrated films from the 80s. And, and, and some crap as well. Also uh, some crap. A, a little too ambitious for his own good in a lot of cases. Uh, his daughter, Sofia Coppola, um, has directed some really excellent films in her own right. Mm-hmm. Um, Academy um, Award winner for Lost in Translation. Yeah, Lost in Translation. Uh, not aged so well, but still a very emotional movie. Um, mm-hmm. As well as as well as some duds of her own. Uh, yeah. I didn't like her remake of Beguiled. I thought that um, wasn't wasn't as thoughtful as it could have been. No, if I think uh, the original is still yeah. still tank, still uh, still better than that one. But I did um, really like her film uh, Somewhere. Or, uh, or I love Marie Antoinette and the Virgin uh, Suicides. I think mm-hmm. those are both excellent. Um, uh, the Virgin Suicides is really good. Uh, Marie Antoinette is is just sumptuous to look at. I liked her costume design mm. in the movie The Spirit of Seventy Six. Okay, she was a costume designer on this comedy called The Spirit of Seventy Six, which mm. starred uh, David Cassidy and Olivia Dabo yeah. as uh, time travelers from the future who have to go back in time to seventeen seventy six because there's pure anarchy in the future, mm. and they need to bring back a copy of the Constitution so that there'll be some laws. A flawed premise, <laughs> but gets even more complicated when they actually end up in 1976 and they end up like doing a whole bunch of 70s stuff like The Hustle. It's really yeah, quite it adorable, was... actually. And Sofia Coppola was the costume designer. And I uh, think that's funny. The screenwriter of Spirit of 76 was Roman Coppola. Yeah. He was also a director. He has directed uh, CQ. CQ, which came out in 2001, uh, which was a... a 
an homage to uh, Barbarella-style 60s science fiction movies. Yeah. And it's for that, as that, it's quite good. He's also written uh, or co-written a lot of screenplays with Wes Anderson. He co-wrote uh, mm. Moonrise Kingdom oh, yeah. and uh, uh, Isle of Dogs and I think mm. one other. Uh, and others. The Darjeeling Limited. Uh, yeah, yeah. So he's done a couple. But the only film he's directed was uh, CQ. Mm. Uh, and Gia Coppola is Sophia and Roman's niece. Okay. Uh, she and then, of course, there's Talia Shire and Nicolas Cage, and there's a, a million. There's a bunch of bunch of people. In the Everyone Coppola secretly dynasty. a Coppola is the <laughs> name of my new novel. Um, am, am I a Coppola? <laughs> uh, she has directed uh, one feature the name film. Of the sequel to the novel. Am I a Coppola? Am I a Coppola? <laughs> She's directed one uh, film previously to this called Palo Alto, uh, which oh, had, yeah. um, uh, Emma Roberts, uh, and it was about a group of teenagers who were just sort of trying to live life as teenagers in the modern day. And it was uh, very thoughtful. It was very kind of natural. I think it was really good about getting into this very uh, laid back, very naturalistic headspace of modern teens. And it was very frank about that. And uh, there's, there's some uh, creepy things in it. There's some really frank views of sex and sexuality. The characters are, have a lot of trouble expressing themselves in that way that teenagers do. And I think Gia Coppola was very sensitive to the way young people talk and think, which is completely bizarre to think when you're watching something like mainstream, which is one of the most dunderheaded, unnatural stories about modern technological living that you could possibly imagine. It sounds like Gia Coppola is actually in her 30s, but this feels like somebody in their 50s whining about kids on Instagram. <laughs> uh, the story of Mainstream is well, the story of a young woman. She's in her mid-20s, and she's kind of at a loss for what she's going to do with her life. Uh, she is play, uh, played by an actress named Maya Hawke, and she works in a bar. Mm. Nat Wolf is her co-worker. They have like magic shows in the bar and she just sort of hangs out at malls and doesn't really do much or think much of anything because she doesn't know what she's going to do. Hmm. She's kind of going through a quarter life crisis. Into her life comes Link, the wild spirit, the manic, manic pixie dream boy. And he's played by Andrew Garfield. And Andrew Garfield uh, has not seen scenery he doesn't want to eat. He's <laughs> He wants to prove how much he can act in one movie, no matter what you're going to put in front of him. Mainstream audiences might know him as Spider-Man, I yeah. suppose. He's like that, Spider-Man. That his biggest, highest profile role. A lot of his movie roles that people know him for are relatively mm -hmm. laid back, like stuff like um, uh, Hacksaw Ridge, which yeah. is really intense, but he plays a very calm presence in it. Mm. Um, so it sounds like a sounds like a bit of an about face for him. It sounds like he is trying to prove himself. But but no, he, if you look at some of the things that are outside of stuff like Spider Man, he's really really going for it. He's actually had this really interesting career. He was the lead in uh, Martin Scorsese's film Silence. Well, yeah, uh, but I wouldn't consider know, that really out there. I think his performance is no, actually very reserved. It's very reserved, but he's he's clearly stretching himself. He's clearly yes. looking for roles where he wants to challenge himself. And in this one, he plays this kind of maniac character who is disgusted with the modern world and he's disgusted that everybody's always looking at their phones man it's 2021 if you're going to criticize social media and there's plenty to criticize sure. understand the nuances as to what's going on well, it's uh, also it also feels a little disingenuous when you have people who are supposed to be like in their 20s mm. you never didn't have phones 
Well, and like and you, if, you don't know what life is like. I'm well, not saying that like people are like millennials are of which I am one are incapable of criticizing mm. the extent to which technology has invaded our lives, but it does sound coming like a bit false. Yeah. To yeah. like, yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, the the main character takes a a, a video of Andrew Garfield sort of acting out in a mall. Posts it online and gets a lot of traction. Mm. You're getting a lot of hits. They're, and they're, they're talking about it as if this is this novel thing, like getting hits on the Ooh, internet. I got, I got a lot of Instagram likes. That that means you're famous. And they go to Jason Schwartzman, who plays this sort of like a preener of uh, online personalities. Mm. Uh, as the as their agent. And he says, well, we can actually turn this into like an online video phenomenon. We're going to hire Andrew Garfield to be this like slick talking game show host type online character who goes under the name Nobody Special. And uh, and he's going to essentially challenge people to come on stage and give up their phones. Again, this feels like at least a decade old, decade too too old Hmm. to sort of introduce this concept as a movie premise. And also, even a decade ago, it would have felt really, like, uh, old man thinking. Mm. It would have been. It would have felt really kind of past its prime, a really misplaced target. Uh, there was a movie that came out last year called The Social Dilemma, and that was a documentary film mixed with some uh, dramatizations about how social media has harmed a lot of, like, aspects of modern consciousness. Right. How it's uh, there's actually a lot of tra- uh, studies about how uh, depression among young people started to spike right around the time uh, social media was introduced into their lives, mm-hmm. and a lot of people see that as a direct correlation. Yeah, um, whether or not that's true, studies haven't been too clear, but it it seems pretty true, right? Mm-hmm. There's a truthiness to there, it. There's there's it, a truthiness it, to it. Yeah, yeah. It, fe- it feels like feels a, right. Is is it corollary? Is it causation? Who can say? But if it, it sounds spe- in a specious sort of way, it mm. sounds right. This is not a film about that. This is not a film about how uh, addicting ourselves to certain aspects of social media is affecting our consciousness and is affecting our moods. This is about criticizing kids who are just looking at their phones all the time and from an outsider who doesn't know what the kids are doing on their their phones. It's not nuanced or interested about the way people think about phones. It's about using a big personality to expose all of that. And the story goes on to reveal that he's actually not that good of a guy. uh, And he has some shady things in his past. And the way he is confronting people about their phone usage is doing some harm Mm. uh, in this really kind of obvious kind of plot contrivance. Golly, I wish that somebody like Gia Coppola, who has proven herself to be a very sensitive director, could actually delve into something like this, because this is something that needs to be addressed. I think there actually is a story here about uh, addiction to social media can actually harm and is is harming us as much as it's helping us and sort of is shaping the way we view the modern world uh, for the better, but also in many ways for the worse. I think this is something that needs to be talked about and needs to be studied and could definitely have a story around it. This is not that film. This is really, really, really misguided, uh, alarmist kind of filmmaking from the perspective of somebody who doesn't really know what they're talking about. But at least we got Andrew Garfield eating every bit of scenery. He's playing this really kind of wild, wacky character who is just you know, 
putting on these weird voices and jumping on tabletops and, you know, clearly wheeling around in a way that uh, the director doesn't really expect. And he's having a blast doing all of this. But uh, golly, I wish there was something on this film's mind. Mm. Uh, it, it it does not succeed. That's a shame. Mm. Uh, well, there are those mm. who wish mainstream could be better. And then there are those who wish me dead. <laughs> Good segue. Thank you. I tried really hard. Uh, there's a new thriller out on HBO Max, also in theaters, uh, from uh, Taylor Sheridan, the director of Hell or High Water mm. and the writer of the Sicario films. A, uh, uh, a wholly unremarkable filmmaker that we have given attention to for some reason. Uh, we, we, Whitney and I are not huge fans. No. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't seen literally every single thing he did. I think I missed Wind River. But and I know some people really like that movie. I also know people who hate its guts, mm. and so I'll get to it at one point. But he also wrote that uh, awful Tom Clancy film we just reviewed. Oh yeah, ro- oh just awful. With, uh, without interest, what's it called? Without remorse. Without remorse. Um, but yeah, he he after a bit of an acting career exploded onto the scene with a film called Hell or High Water, which, as far as I was concerned, and again, I know mm. I might be in the minority of this. That a lot of people mm. love this movie, mm. but to me, that was a very straightforward bank heist modern robin hood western riff yeah. uh and with... he, he wrote it by the way he wrote that in sicario oh yeah he didn't direct this is no, um... he, he directed didn't he direct hell or high water no he did not direct hell or high water I that was it was uh david mckenzie was the name of the director on that oh one. you're right well in any case he wrote that one uh and um yeah i don't know i i it's it's okay i guess i just thought it was rather superficial machismo Mm-hmm. I think his Sicario films are really the first one's really elevated by uh, Denis Villeneuve's direction and um, uh, who was the DP on that? Uh, oh, it was uh, uh, um, not Kaminsky. It was no. um, Deacons. Deacons. Roger Deacons, mm-hmm. who can shoot the hell out of anything. Uh, but ultimately, I actually found the screenplay to be kind of frustratingly obtuse and ultimately poorly structured. I think the second one even worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm not a fan. Uh, again, Wind River, maybe that could turn the tide, but not a fan going into this. Uh, his latest film that he did direct, Those Who Wish Me Dead, stars Angelina Jolie as a firefighter recovering from a really traumatic incident about a year prior in which he wasn't able to save some kids. Uh, and now she is uh, responsible for the relatively laid back job of uh, sitting in a fire tower, keeping lookout during fire season in, I think, was it Montana, I think they said? There's a Vermont. I forgot where it was. Whatever. It's, it's in the American. It's in, like, in it's a, the American a, wood, a wooded area yeah. of the United States. Uh, and unfortunately for her, and for a lot of other people, uh, a, it, it is Montana. I just it, looked it up. Okay, I'm yeah. glad I. Okay, I paid attention. You got it right. Okay. Uh, she and uh, on like a collision course with her is a father and son. The father has uncovered some sort of major political corruption. He's an accountant who discovered... They they don't get into specifically what he discovered because it really doesn't fucking matter. The point is, there's a pair of hitmen after him played by Aidan Gillen and Nicholas Holt. And they are killing everyone who knows anything about this. And he is running into the woods. And just when he's about to get to what he thinks is a safe house, the dad is killed by these assassins, but the little kid runs into the woods. And the hitmen are trying to find the kid. And in order to sort of keep people distracted so that they can kill with impunity, they also start a forest fire. Kid ends up with Angelina Jolie. That's the chase. Um, 
I actually d- dig how simple and straightforward this movie is in a lot of ways. This is actually mm-hmm. a very direct airplane novel kind of thriller without yeah, a lot of ambition beyond that. It is very, very much airport pot boiler yeah. material here. Um, very Pick much up like my the paperbacks, the read yeah. it on a plane, done by the time you get you get there in three hours. Yeah, yeah. so just enough texture, like, oh, here's a story about a, a firefighter. And also, uh, but it's also like a cop thriller and it's also an assassination thriller. Yeah. And, and a hitman and a cop and a firefighter and a in, kid. It, they're, they're, it's like one hair away from having the, the name of a Greek letter in the title. Like, <laughs> the, the, the Alpha Incidents, the, the Omega Conspiracy, the, the Theta Explosion, whatever you got. Yeah. Uh, it's not quite that spy thriller because it's a little too woodsy. Well, it's also, it's also not really about espionage. It's actually just kind of tough guy fiction. This feels like the kind of movie Don Siegel would have made. Um, I'm by, uh, I think the Don Siegel who made Charlie Varick Like let's just do this crime story We're gonna hmm. Something loud's going on outside our window uh, Basically it's like We got a crime thriller It's got a pretty simple setup and hook uh, And we're just gonna write it A little bit sharper And we're gonna have people make some Unusual choices throughout There's a scene where uh, John Bernthal Plays the, the cop in this one Who's hmm. Uh, forced to do some some difficult things, and there's a scene that I really like where he's just like, you know what, fuck it, no, I'm not gonna do anything. I'm not gonna do what the movie expects me to do right now. I need to skip to the end of this thing. I know where this is going. Fuck it. And a part of me is just like, see, I like that. <laughs> it, it's it's not sublimely clever or anything mm. like that. You didn't blow my fucking mind, but the script didn't go exactly where I expected it to go, and I think mm. that's. That's the kind of like three star movie that I can really get behind. This is not a four star, three star movie, which again is a principle I've devised mm. wherein a movie that is not trying to be four stars it's, but is as good as it could possibly get. It's, it's aiming for the middle and hits it really well. Yeah, it does everything it needs to do, but there's no way based on what it's trying to do it could ever be four stars. That's a four star, three star movie. This is a three star, three star movie. <laughs> this is just it's it's aiming for three stars. It mostly hits it. Uh, there's a, the, the, the hitmen are idiots a lot of the time, even though they're treated like real, like super crazy evil geniuses, and mostly they're not. And I think that kind of hinders the level right. of cool. I think the movie's going for a lot of the time. Nicholas Holt is is quite good at playing that type of a character. He's good. Yeah. He, he's a very malleable actor, and I like Nicholas Holt, and I like what he's doing with his career. I actually think Angelina Jolie is great in this. I th- forgot how much I like her in just an action movie. Like, she's really can carry mm. this sort of thing better than I, I think, a lot of other people. I think she's an incredibly versatile actress. Uh, she's a very good actress. Yeah. Uh, and... I feel like she's a little bit at a loss here because the mm. character she's playing is not in ter- like really textured. No. She's trying to bring a lot of like sort of wit and personality to this role, you know, the kind that you hire Angelina Jolie for. Yeah. And she is not really permitted to do that. She's a little bit too fixed into that action hero role mm-hmm. where she just has to, uh, you know, accompany child and yeah. do badass things and as such I feel like she's frittered away they kind of i don't think hired somebody like angelina jolie to play a really uninteresting part i i I agree with you in principle because Mm. it's not a great role it's not a brilliant role by any stretch but what i like is and this is like classic movie star shit get a good actor to do a somewhat generic role Mm. and they bring way more life to it than it would have had otherwise there's another universe 
where this is a somewhat cheaper, it's still not very expensive. I'm sure it costs money towards the end, but like you could do this on a very low budget. Uh, there's a version of this movie that stars like, I don't know, who's a straight to video, like Tom Berenger in the early 2000s. <laughs> yeah, like it's yeah. just like barely, it goes straight to video where like barely ekes out at like mm. the beginning of September in theaters. Mm. And it would just be fine. It would just be like, oh, okay. And well, here, I th- and I think Angelina Jolie is a captivating enough person that she is able to make the relatively thin material she's given better than it mm-hmm. is. Is it amazing? No, like I said, not a four star, three star, just a three star. I, uh, I I think the cast elevates this beyond mm-hmm. just ordinary schlock, but it doesn't save it from being uh, a multiplex packing material, just something mm-hmm. to fill out the houses that don't have the blockbusters, right? Uh, but I think yeah, this is an okay you, you, you version see, of that. You though. said Tom Berenger. I was thinking Steven Seagal. You know, oh, it would yeah. be in, in the the Angelina Jolie movie, um, but for a twist of fate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I, I feel like there's just not really a lot interesting to latch on to. Mm. But it's totally watchable. It's the yeah. kind of thing that you leave on in the background. Yes, yeah. like this is a HBO. very this is a very serviceable thrill. Uh, there's nothing mm. really to complain about much here. Other than here's why it's not amazing. It's so it's so middle of the road. I'm struggling to find anything I can recommend about it. Again, I I I miss when this was kind of the baseline for a lot of thrillers. Mm-hmm. When like action American action movies were just like, yeah, okay, you get the handful of really really big stuff in the summer, but then the majority of the action thrillers you got throughout the year were like hard target. You know, maybe they got some zazz, but they're not throwing money at these things. It's that kind of... Films where people who are my age are writing articles about how important they were when they saw them when they were like 14. Now, back when B-movies were actual B-movies. Like, not bad movies, just... Mid-budget, modest ambition, modest ambitions, clearly genre elements... Uh, They were made to entertain, make their money back, maybe try out new talent, be uh, a testing ground for new directors, and then we'd give them something a little bit more exciting later. Mm. For that, this is pretty good. I think this is probably my favorite Taylor Sheridan anything that I've seen. Uh, Which isn't saying much, because I haven't liked Taylor Sheridan. Like I said, and again, I haven't seen Wind River, but beyond Mm. that... This is easily the best thing I've seen him connected to. All right, uh, and th- and the only one that I would just without you know qualification like Sicario, great cinematography, Denis Villeneuve rescues a shoddy script. Maybe it's worth watching. This one, this is a solid three stars. Yeah, I just I dig it. I don't <laughs> love it, but I dig it. It's worth a watch. I had a good time. All right. And uh, our last new release of the week. Uh, is a film about kissing two lovers. No, it's called The Killing of Two Lovers. I read that wrong. (laughs) This is a film by a director named Robert Machoian. Excuse me. Um, Mm. Robert Robert Machoian uh, is telling a story that starts out uh, in this really harrowing place. And mm. it leaves us in that mindset for the rest of the movie. Um, yeah. It starts, we uh, see two lovers in bed, they're asleep, and standing over them is a man with a gun. Uh, this is the story of the man with a gun. Uh, something startles him, and he flees out a window before there's any violence. The sound design, however, makes us think that there's constant violence. There's things like mm. s- screeching tires and slamming car doors and uh, hammers of guns cocking just when somebody's walking down the street. It's like kind of wrapped up in the score. It is amazing sound design. 
And uh, we end up learning that this man who was holding the gun uh, was actually holding the gun on his estranged wife and her new boyfriend. Mm. And it, the story is actually about how uh, this man, uh, he is played by uh, Clean Crawford, uh, how he is trying to essentially traverse a trial separation from his wife, tries to be a good uh, father to his children, and how his... Children are maybe drifting away from them. He has three younger boys who are uh, like also trying to traverse what this new living scenario might be like. But he also has an older daughter. She's a teenager who sees exactly what's going on and starts to blame him for the separation because it's mm. affecting her life personally and all of the familiar pressures that that's putting on him. He is not really able to put his feet under him because he thinks this is temporary. He's moved in with his elderly father who has begun to berate him the way he used to. He's taking on some odd jobs. He's not really, doesn't really have much of a career. And it is essentially about how his life is just, even though he's, he has it in his hands, is still sort of unraveling and he can't really keep it together and how frustrating that is for him and how that's really pushing him to the edge. And we don't know how this is going to turn out. This isn't uh, a, a simple sort of breakup narrative where we see him just sort of going through his struggles and he's going to come out on the other side of this. We actually mm. feel like we're in a really violent place. There aren't acts of violence, mm. but we feel like there might be at any given minute from any of the characters. Like David is not this sort of at-risk character who's going to you know, whip himself into this fury <laughs> He might, but yeah. at the same time, maybe he's going to be a victim here. Uh, and putting us in that mindset, keeping us on their toes, keeping us really, really uncomfortable is a masterwork of cinema. Wow. I love that sort of feeling of, isn't it nice? You know, we talked to uh, several of the movies we reviewed this week have been really predictable. We know where they're going to go. Yeah. It, what a refreshing thing to, to not know to where, uh, where this film is going, not just in terms of plot, but where it's going to go with the minds of the characters. It never stretches into kind of potboiler territory. It feels very kind of grounded in that early works of David Gordon Green sort of way, where it's in this really small town where there's a lot of poverty. There's a lot of long stretches of road where you just sort of sit in a truck with somebody and just let yourself stew uh, or you stew with the kids. You get to see him make some grand gestures with his kids and how that does and does not work in this really kind of realistic way. Uh, it is simultaneously this realistic family drama mm. and a really taut thriller. Oh. Uh, it, it really walks this really interesting balance. Uh, I really, really liked it. it this, this debuted, Sounds cool. Uh, yeah, this debuted at, uh, at, at Sundance. Uh, just last year, it's released by Neon. If you know uh, the studio Neon, you know what they do tend to deal with some pretty uh, outre, interesting dramas. Uh, some of them have been up for Academy Awards. I, Tanya was a Neon film. Um, I didn't see uh, Ingrid Goes West, but that one was really uh, mm. well acclaimed. And they did Parasite. Okay. Uh, so um, they're one of the studios that's doing some really, really interesting work. And uh, I'm really, taste. really interested in what Neon puts out. Okay. Uh, I'm also very fond of Neon because of just from a little bit of insider baseball perspective, they give the best screeners at the end of the year. Mm -hmm. Neon puts together these gigantic, uh, like books of everything they've put Very out. convenient. They just, yeah, they just mail it to us. Yeah. It's really convenient for me. Yeah, as it's supposed to have into like archive a whole bunch of like different, like online screener codes and everything. Mm -hmm. 
The DVDs simplifies here, it. Here they are. They're doesn't just mean all in the, one spot. Doesn't mean the movies are good. It does mean they you know where they are. They're well organized. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and yeah, and I've liked most of what they've put out just in terms of they look they're looking for interesting stories yeah. so this is another really really fascinating yeah. film so i, I really rec- highly recommend this awesome one. I'm, I'm sad i missed it uh well let's uh let's uh look back over the new releases of the last couple of weeks uh we're gonna review these films on the critically acclaimed scale which if you're new or if you've forgotten we review films on a scale of c minus to c plus the lowest you can get is a c minus that's below average it means we don't recommend your movie the highest you can get is a c plus that's above average it means we do recommend your movie all other movies get a C. They're fine. There's some good. There's some bad. They're a C. And uh, away we go. Uh, Whitney, on a scale of C minus to C plus, uh, where does The Killing of Two Lovers land? That is a C plus. Mm. I really, really dug it, uh, depending on how deep it got under my skin and how much I find myself mm. thinking about it throughout the year. Uh, it, it, it might stick with me and end up on some mm. top ten lists. All right. uh, those who wish me dead, I am giving a mild C plus. Like ah. not not super enthusiastic, not run out and see it, but I think if you see it, I think you'll dig it. Right. Uh, it's a very straightforward thriller, uh, uncomplicated, uh, but well made, and right. I enjoyed it. There you go. This this is uh, defines five out of ten. This is like <laughs> glued to the center. It is a C. It will never be anything more or less. <laughs> Ouch. Okay, fair enough. Uh, let's see what we got here. What was after the the, 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 the mainstream? Mainstream, uh, C minus. Uh, in, interest like faints in the direction of something interesting, but doesn't succeed. All right, the woman in the window. It's uh, it's bad, but is it watchable? Bad, Whitney. Where do you rate it? Oh, it's a it's a C minus. Oh, okay. Just <laughs> Never because mind. It's, just because it's a watchable bad doesn't mean it's not uh, bad. I barely consider it. I I don't recommend this except as a genre exercise in yeah. which. Uh, Basically, it shows when the exercise of, fails. A bunch of interesting filmmakers got together and made a film that is not interesting. Yeah, you can learn a lot from uh, what not to do in mm. this film. Uh, so yeah, this is a C minus. Uh, I wish it was interesting enough to be yeah, worth if, more than that. If it were more ambitious and did something really crazy, then maybe I could recommend it yeah. for that. But it still wouldn't be good. Yeah. Uh, let's see uh, what we got here. It was the fried berry. Fried berry. Uh, a, a C plus. All right. C plus, yeah, re- really wild, interesting, sleazy, filthy, greasy kind of movie, and it's my kind. That's my kind of filth. Mm. Uh, and then finally, Spiral from the Book of Saw. This is one of those movies where I'm going to kind of give two ratings because there's two different kinds of audiences for mm-hmm. it. Um, I think that if you just love the Saw movies, uh, you might find something to latch onto here. In which case, it's a C. Mm. It's lower echelon on the Saw list, but it, I can see appreciating it. But as its own film, as like a reboot and as like its own story, this is a, this is a C minus. Not a passionate C minus. It doesn't like completely clunk it. It's just pretty obvious mm-hmm. uh, and uh, doesn't really give you the goods. Doesn't really deliver the entertainment value or the thoughtful commentary that it seems to want to, and that's a bit disappointing. But Chris Rock is good, man. Um, and that is the new release list for the episode uh, coming up. Right now. I don't know why I said coming up. So we're going to cut to commercial. Uh, <laughs> so stick around after these words. Words. Here's 13 Assassins. <laughs> it's the, pay, it's the uh, uh, critically acclaimed streaming club where our patrons decide what film we're going to watch every single week. We give you a streaming service and like a category. And 
our patrons vote between one of four films. Mm-hmm. We will watch that film, and we will talk about that film on the next episode of Critically Acclaimed. This time we were talking about, action, was it action movies on Hulu? Action movies in the action section on Hulu. Yeah, and uh, this one was a Whitney Seibold special. Uh, I thought Money Plane was going to win this, and it came pretty close, actually. <laughs> Want to bet, bet on a movie? Money Plane. You you thought it was going to be Money Plane, too. I, on, I, I thought it was going to be a, a total shoe-in. Like, yeah. no like, nothing would get any other votes. And instead, you went with, actually, one of the classier options, which was Takeshi Maike's 13 Assassins, which is a remake of a 1963 film by Iichi Kudo. Uh, it is a well-respected samurai classic, which I actually haven't seen. I'm a generally, uh, I'm generally a fan of the samurai genre. I've seen a lot of the classic films. It's also several I haven't got around to yet. This was one of them. So this is an instance where I'm looking at the remake, but not the original. Uh, Aichi Kudo also did a, a seven samurai knockoff called Eleven Samurai. <laughs> oh, clever. Uh, Seven and, and Samurai. I, and I gotta see a movie he did called Aftermath of Battles Without Honor and Humanity. Ooh, nice. That sounds good. Uh, Seven Samurai. We have to start talking about uh, 13 Assassins with Seven Samurai, which is mm. uh, a really groundbreaking 1954 classic of action cinema uh, directed by Akira Kurosawa. And it's epic. It's like a three hour movie, but it's also impressively simple. It is about a small town of people who are besieged by bandits. They cannot afford to give the bandits any more of what they're stealing, nor can they afford to be killed by the bandits. So what they decide to do is to hire samurai to protect them. However, they're a poor village, so they can't afford good samurai. <laughs> they can afford what they call, they, there's a great line in it. It was like, we can't afford to pay them. All we can afford to give them is like some cheap food. And they say, okay, we'll find a hungry samurai. Yeah. <laughs> and that's it. They're looking for people who are willing to work for cheap or willing to work for the principle of the thing. And they find a group, a ragtag group of misfits who team up together to overcome unbelievable odds. And, and they're, and they're very you know, blase about it. It's like, they can't pay us. They're, it's this little village yeah. in the middle of nowhere. This will get us nothing in terms of money yeah. or honor. A lot of samurai turn them down, but yeah. the ones who are, I'm like, fair enough. And 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 most of them say, well, I got nothing else. Yeah, like, nothing nothing better is going on. It's right like now. the right thing to do or like whatever. Really, I don't really, care if I live or die. Uh, it it's such a simple premise. It's been remade many times throughout film history to the, the point where they don't is, they, the point where they don't even samurai. call their shots anymore like galaxy yeah. quest and a bug's life are remakes of a seven samurai yeah. they weren't called remakes but they are that's exactly it's, what it's they the, are it's such a an efficient premise that you could transpose it to just about any genre it still works and in many respects it, it defined a lot of the the visual language that we still use in action cinema but it also codified this sort of men on a mission storyline uh, that it didn't invent it, but it really put together the pieces of the right way to do it. And pretty much everyone's been ripping them off ever since. And again, I haven't seen the original 13 assassins is my understanding. It's very inspired by seven samurai based on what I've read. Uh, and Takeshi Miike's film is definitely a part of that. And the plot of the movie is thus, uh, it is, uh, the 19th century. It, and there is it's a, at the a- end of the age of samurai. Yeah. 
Like sa- Samurai is uh, about to not. This is right at the end of the Edo period in Japan, yeah. and yeah, Samurai uh, serving the ro- royal masters mm. is about to be a thing of the past. Yeah. Samurai are uh, lifelong professional warriors, mm. uh, and uh, they live by a great code of honor, and uh, they are dedicated to the people that they serve. Uh, there are also uh, masterless samurai called Ronin, uh, who may be hired. At the beginning of the movie, we find out that uh, one of the uh, closest people in succession uh, to the the basically the the throne, if you will, mm. is a fucking monster. As uh, Lord Naritsugu, who's a real uh, historical figure, mm-hmm. although um, reports of his actual behavior don't match this movie. No, there's they, a lot they, of liberties they, they, that have been taken. They, yeah. they project a lot onto him. Yeah, uh, but uh, in this particular movie, uh, Takeshi Miike is, first off, an astoundingly prolific filmmaker. Look, just go to his IMDb page and count how many feature films he's directed. I dare you. Try. It's it's literally over a hundred. It's a lot. Yeah, and he, he started in like the early nineties, and he's yeah. in yeah, like in a uh, he's writing multiple a movies 30, a year for the last couple a, a, of decades. A, yeah, a thirty year period has made like hundred and twenty. And it's astounding how many of them are a good mm-hmm. and b actually pretty ambitious. Like he's not just cranking these things out in his backyard. Like he's actually like putting together some pretty impressive productions a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is definitely one of them. But he's also a filmmaker who is very comfortable uh, presenting violence. With extremes, yeah. Yeah, with absolute extremity. And sometimes he does it to great effect. Sometimes I think he's just doing it to do it. Um, here he is using shocking violence to clarify just beyond a shadow of a doubt that this particular target, this particular corrupt politician... Only solution is to kill them. That's but the only is, solution anyone in the, the in the uh, government can think of, because but, because the the rules are so clearly codified, they have to follow yeah, the yeah. orders and the leadership that is presented to them. And if they don't, the entire government falls apart because it's all based on faith. Yeah, the uh, so the order the only way to stop him is to kill him. He he is presented. Uh, the the very first thing that happens in the movie is his brother, uh, this evil lord's brother, mm. is so ashamed that he commits seppuku. That's the, the very first thing we see in the movie. And uh, we, the first 20 minutes of this movie or so is just a litany of how awful he is. Yeah. All Mutil- the horrible things he's done, the people he's killed. Mutilations, yeah, uh, violence, beheadings, yeah. just absolute like monster. T- torture behavior. and sexual violence. Yeah. Like, he's just a, a horrible monster and he feels nothing. He's yeah. just, he's like, he's like Caligula. And yeah. uh, yes, um, one of the uh, one of the lords who's close to Lord Noritsugu uh, decides to hire an assassin. He says, mm-hmm. well... And like in Seven Samurai, they can't really find a huge group of assassins to take on this lord and his army. Yeah. So Uh, they have to get a small selection uh, of very ambitious ones. And they end up with... uh, uh, 13 of them. They end up with 13 of them. Uh, But uh, they're led by uh, Shimada Shinzaiman, who is played by really a great actor who people don't talk enough about in America, uh, Koji Yakusha, who... In addition to playing the absolute fucking badass samurai leader in this movie, was also the very sensitive businessman who learns ballroom dancing in Shall We Dance. <laughs> and if you just want to see range, mm. just put those two side by mm. side because he's amazing yeah. in both. And uh, the the politician comes to him and says, 
I need to hire you to do this. This is something that is uh, mm. shameful, but it needs to be done for the good of the country. And he's basically being told, listen, I want to hire you to kill a politician, to go up against an army of probably hundreds with you and maybe a couple other people. Mm. And the guy hears this and he sees the horrors that this, how intimidating this person is. And he takes a second and thinks about it. He says, this is the best thing that ever happened to me because <laughs> I have basically retired from being a samurai. It's the end of an era. And I thought I was going to die without honor. Mm. So I get to go out in a blaze of glory and by God, I will. <laughs> and he enlists now, 13, uh, 12 mm. other, sam- well, actually 11 other samurai and one random dude in a very the, seven samurai. The, the, yeah. The, which is the, the Toshiro Mifune role. Yeah. Uh, and uh, basically the first half of the movie is just planning. It's it's planning, it's trekking through the woods, and it's col- it's uh, color and texture. Yeah. Uh, Takashi Miike, you said he's very comfortable with violence. Uh, his films tend to be pretty slowly paced. A lot if, of the time, if yeah. you watch Takashi yeah. Miike films, unless you're watching something really wild like Happiness of the Katakuris. Yeah, he'll, he'll make an uh, exception here or there, but he can be very he can be very patient. Yeah, or, or uh, Ichi the Killer is just wild all the time. Yeah. But yeah, his his films tend to like move in a very uh, deliberate sort of way. And this is uh, a rare instance where uh, Takashi Miike is trying and succeeding to be really sort of classy. Yeah. He is really trying to uh, revel in the detail and of the period. It's a lot of really nice, you know, period costumes, really good uh, s- stead of very visually interesting photography. Mm. He's not sort of spinning all over the place. Uh, and he's really trying to uh, delve into... Those classic, uh, classic tone, uh, tone and themes of classic Japanese cinema of uh, honor and modernity. These these are mainstays of a lot of Japanese cin- cinema. Um, you know, especially when dealing with a samurai film that is about the samurai's honor, about their place in history, about maintaining a larger, much more ordered, much classier uh, structure of ordainment, as it were. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also how classy is subjective, but yeah, uh, you know yeah. it's it's cultural, yeah. cultural thing. And uh, he's, but also that that a lot of these old world things are now kind of breaking down in mm-hmm. a state of constantly breaking down. Uh, classical versus modernity is something you'll find just pervasive throughout a lot of Japanese cinema. And he's he's right here with it, seeing the end of the samurai era, because it is about the end of the Edo period. And saying that there actually was something very noble about that. Mm-hmm. And he spends most of the film in that mindset. He's not making an action film. The last 45 minutes of the film uh-huh. is the action film. And it's non The last 45 <laughs> minutes of this movie are non-stop it's ju- and awesome I, And action. that's not an exaggeration. Actual 45 minutes. Yeah, like it's, it's, it's a lot of setup. Like there's a, not a lot of action mm. before. And there's like a couple of short fights. But it's not a lot of action. It's all build up. And you're thinking to yourself, okay, what are we really building to here? We're building to a shockingly enormous climax that takes up a third. of the, And it's the climax. Mm. The climax takes up a third of the film. Like, I got to respect that. That's fucking awesome. And uh, it, it starts to strain credulity. How could have just these 13 guys set up an entire town to wipe out an well, army of hundreds? But let's talk about that. Because but, what, uh, they, yeah. what they do, yeah. this is the plan, is they're going to divert... Uh, this politician's uh, path. He's like traveling with an entourage Mm. Uh, and they're trying to make sure that he's going to end up exactly in this one town. 
And this is the town that they've decided that they're going to put all their money on this. If he goes another direction, this will not work and we're just going to lose our chance and it's over. But if he goes through here, we got him. Because we got some time to turn this entire town, this beautifully realized historical town... Mm. Into a giant saw trap. L- large, elaborate set then yeah. that is now designed to murder hundreds yeah. of people. There, there are explosives tied up everywhere. All of the rooftops are covered in arrows and weapons for people to just run and grab like, if you know where they are. Muddy gasoline and big pools everywhere. Yeah. Well, not, Gi- flammable substance. Yeah. Not gasoline, Gi- giant, yeah. giant walls of like uh, of wooden stakes that are just designed to like prevent people from going off and like trapping people inside like courtyards so that they're easy pickings. For archers on rooftops uh and of course right before the big action hits they find out that uh their scheme was uncovered and they decided to call their bluff and instead the what they thought was going to be them versus 70 guys is them versus 200 mm. uh so it, the odds are intense and they do an exceptionally good job of making it seem plausible for a while that they could actually really make this a fight um, and what you were talking about, this sort of like this story of like the old world and the new world and how there's a tragedy in the loss. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see that literally this town, this beautiful town gets annihilated <laughs> over the course of 45 minutes. And what's really incredible about it is this wicked monster who is like this close to being the one of the most powerful he's one already one of the most powerful people in japan and he's only there's only like three people more powerful than him and it's only going to get closer as he suddenly realizes that he's in the middle of a war zone there's this really incredible moment where he looks at everything going on this horrible devastation Mm. the sacrifices he almost dies a couple of times and he says to himself this is the coolest fucking thing I have ever seen. Mm. And if we get out of this, I'm going to make sure that an age of war begins unlike any we have ever seen. Cause this shit is awesome. And so the point of the movie becomes, we have to kill this guy before this, the climax of this movie becomes the norm, which is pretty subversive. And I dig it. it, It's pretty subversive. It's anti-war. And uh, the, and at the very end, there is a final confrontation with that guy and one of the assassins. Oh, and so uh, just sort of his attitude is just monstrous to the end. He never has like that moment of regret. No. Just, yeah, so, so what? I'm, I'm powerful. I'll never, I'll never die. Bring it on. I am immortal. I'm a lord. You can't kill me. Yeah. Uh, whether or not he actually gets his comeuppance, I'll we'll wait for you to see. Yeah, but, I'm not going to uh, run that much for you. But, um, but it's, it's, mm. it's great, consistent characterization of a villain. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, in terms of it, it, we're describing things that are, you know, handed down from decades of cinema that preceded mm-hmm. it and uh, all of these action tropes. Mm-hmm. We, we, Seven Samurai was kind of the flashpoint for a lot of that, that came out in the mid fifties. So yeah. it's been a long time since we've lived with characters like this in terms of cinema history. And it's tempting to use the word cliche or recycled or remake when describing a film like 13 Assassins, but it's not. It's simply drawing on broader, longer cinema traditions to, mm. it, in a way that doesn't make it feel cliched or trite. It's actually kind it, of classical. It feels, yeah, it feels really the word that's the exact word I was going to use was classical, yeah. uh, which is great for an action uh, movie set in that was made in 2010. Uh-huh. Uh, 
it's astonishing to see from a wildly varied filmmaker like Takashi Miike. He actually can mm-hmm. do something kind of restrained, mm-hmm. which is a weird word to use to describe something like 13 Assassins, yeah. which has a 45-minute action climax. There's a lot of really Miike moments in like the first act, but after that it really settles in and becomes as classy an action mm-hmm. movie as I've seen. Yeah. 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 It's really fucking good. If, I'm really if, glad if I finally saw this. If Miike has a masterpiece, well, that would be Gozu. But uh, <laughs> but this is close. This is also I would close. I would argue it's audition. But regardless, mm. but the, then again, the dude's made so many movies. There's so many we've never seen. That's true. So I, for I, all we I, know, his greatest masterpiece could be... I'm just, Z- I'm just, Zebra Man 2. Or I'm looking at... Okay, Ninja here Kids with three exclamation It could points. be Rainy Dog or... Mm. Uh, uh, agitator or he did a, graveyard of honor or Miike did a stage rendition of Zatoichi. I just saw point. that. Yeah. yeah. That I wish I could have seen that. He did a very good, uh, manga adaptation, which is also a, um, a samurai film called blade of the immortal. Uh, oh, I haven't seen blade of the immortal. I really yeah. dug it. And if you liked 13 assassins and you want to see more, um, EK along these lines, I highly recommend checking that out. There's a supernatural element to it. It's about an assassin who, uh, cannot die, hmm. uh, much to his chagrin, and he ends up. It's a lot like the movie Logan. He ends up like taking in a small child and protecting them from an army of assassins, and uh, it's just fucking badass. Hmm. Like it's just a really fucking cool movie. Um, I love samurai movies. I think samurai movies are some of the most exciting action cinema, and I think that there is some appreciation for them in Western culture, but often mostly through how they're filtered down. Into whatever is currently popular, whether it was uh, western westerns and gangsters, western gangster movies, a lot of times, uh, uh, films uh, like uh, uh, the Magnificent Seven were very directly inspired by that. Was particularly by uh, uh, Seven Samurai, but a lot of the westerns of the 1960s were heavily influenced by samurai films, um, and a lot of gangster movies as well. Road to Perdition is very clearly based off of the Baby Cart or Lone Wolf and Cub series. Um, these are stories of people who live lives of violence, but not lives without honor. And I think that's something that attracts a lot of people. And we've seen some superhero movies attempt to cultivate that, particularly Logan. Yeah. Uh, and, and to a lesser extent, the Wolverine, but the Wolverine's a bit more broad and cartoony. Like Logan's really going for it. Um, the original, and, and also uh, The Mandalorian has a lot of it as well. But like the originals, oh, the Star Wars has samurai all over the place. We've talked about it multiple times mm-hmm. in our uh, Episode Zero podcast. Uh, the original samurai films are absolutely worth seeking out if you aren't actually familiar with them directly. They're not just old. They're actually very vibrant a lot of the time, and they hold up really well. Seven Samurai holds up really fucking well. <laughs> Even though there's been a, a million copycats, the original is still very distinct. It doesn't just feel like a template. It's so exciting. It's it, so good. It's absolutely incredible. Uh, Yojimbo and I feel the highly underrated sequel, Senjuro, are both absolutely fantastic, but even if you get beyond... Mm. Uh, Akira Kurosawa there's a lot of really wonderful films out there uh, one of my favorite double features I saw this as a double feature at the New Art actually where you used to work mm. uh, was uh, Sword of Doom which is about a sociopathic samurai like imagine that's a really good movie imagine like a samurai movie but with like the tone of Nightcrawler uh-huh. like that was Sword of Doom uh, and also Kill with an exclamation point is it's essentially a remake of, of Sanjuro it's based on the same novel uh, but it feels like a completely different movie. It's really funny. 
but it's also super action-packed and exciting and i highly recommend seeking those out there's a lot of modern films as well great uh, contemporary mm-hmm. relatively contemporary samurai film uh that i love that made a bit of a splash when it came out that no one talked about for a while was twilight samurai that was a really good one. That was good. Yeah, yeah. That's a good fucking movie. And, and I, the the director was like in his nineties. Oh, and he also made one. like a yeah. hundred movies. Yeah, like, yeah. It just, it's like yeah. one year, and everybody says, "Oh, this is like the end of his career." Is really celebrating, and then he made like ten more movies after <laughs> that. Uh, the Zatoichi films are all a ton mm-hmm. of fun. The Lone Wolf and Cub movies are all great, and they arguably get they arguably get better as they go along. Um, it's a really wonderful genre, and I hope that if this. Following along with us here was an introduction to some of you for it. You keep seeking it out because there's a lot of really exciting work done here. Um, so uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. That was the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club, and that was Critically Acclaimed for this week here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. We'll be back next week with reviews of films like Army of the Dead. And on the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club, uh, this week's topic is Italian films on the Criterion Collection. Yeah, we went for action films. Now we're going uh, skimming a little bit uh, classier. Well, all of the films that are on the the poll this week are considered classics. Uh, and uh, real fast, in case you're wondering, uh, those films are, and all of our patrons can vote for these, regardless if you're one dollar a month or above. Your options are Rome, Open City, which is one of the uh, first significant films in the Italian neorealist movement after World War II, which is a really exciting and important artistic movement. Uh, uh, Federico Fellini's Knights of Cabiria uh, Which is about a sex worker uh, Looking for love and Struggling to find it uh, Michael Antonioni's first color film Red Desert which is about a love triangle With a very sexy Richard Harris and, but, you know, but slow moving and dull because it's Antonioni it, it, Actually yes I've seen that one <laughs> That's one I've seen already oh, okay. <laughs> so, yeah, It's slow moving and dull but it, it may be fascinating. And uh, and then uh, Gio Pontecorvo's The Battle of Algiers, which is about mm-hmm. a political uprising in Algiers in the 1950s. And that is considered one of the best movies ever made by a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So uh, these are uh, all... I love it. <laughs> there's a lot. I haven't, and it's mm-hmm. one of the bigger films I've never seen. So these are all movies that are currently available on Criterion, and we'd love to watch them all, and I'm sure we'll get around to them eventually. But, uh, and again, obviously some of us have seen some of them. Uh, but we'll vote for whichever one wins the poll. So if you head on over to patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, you can vote on that poll. You can vote on other polls that we have as well. You can also get a slew of exclusive other podcasts, including Holy Batman, where we review every single episode of the 1960s Batman. Uh, All Our Yesterdays, where we review every single episode of Star Trek in production order. Uh, Only the Best, where we review every... <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> I think I need some water. Uh, we review every single film ever nominated for Best Picture. Not on Disney Plus, where we review uh, films that are not available on Disney Plus, but should be. Commentary tracks, we got a lot over there at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. And we want to give a very special big shout out to all of our patrons, without whom we couldn't do any of these shows. So thank you very much for your contributions. Seriously, you're the reason we're here. Thank you. And if you can't afford to be a patron, we totally get it, but there's lots of other ways you can help out. Please subscribe wherever you find us. Leave us a review wherever you find us. A star rating, a couple of short sentences, whatever you feel comfortable with, that really helps boost us up the algorithm and help us find uh, more audiences uh, down the line. We're also on Twitter, at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. You can also email us. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Uh, ask us questions. Uh, critique our critiques. 
we're really open books and we try to answer every email that we can and we might do so on an upcoming episode of we've got mail uh and um That's, there's more you, you got soap oh I have yeah a, soap I'll, etsy.com salt cat soap we're selling father's day gift sets right now they're really classy and they're inspired by a certain film which contains references to elderberries and shrubberies because we have elderberry wow. soaps and shrubbery soaps available in a very nice Father's Day box set. Fancy and perfect for gift giving. Uh, yeah, the conversation. Maybe. Yeah. Um, salt Cat Soap, all one word, at Etsy. We're also on, uh, Salt Cat Soap is also on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, I have a new podcast. You do, and please tell people <laughs> about this podcast. Uh, this is because, such a great podcast. Because I'm not podcasting enough. Uh, I, I was um, <laughs> I was recruited by uh, by the wonderful B. Peterson, uh, who runs their own web uh, own network of podcasts the screens called margins. the screens margins and over there they're doing podcasts with uh mark edward hoik and a bunch of other interesting people uh about topics that aren't typically covered in podcast form uh the films of frederick wiseman uh, the films of dorothy arzner and uh b has enlisted me to cover one of the more interesting streaming services out there ovid Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a streaming service devoted to essentially all of those films that you heard about playing at museums yeah. that you didn't have and it was only showing once on a Wednesday afternoon and you yeah. weren't able to get off of work to go see it. The majority of their films uh, are international films which mm. struggle to find uh, mainstream distribution here because mm. they're not very, uh, uh, well, mainstream, but, are they? They're not very bankable, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so, they're not action movies. They're not thrillers, mm. mostly. They're... They're serious, interesting dramas based yeah, so, on specific cultures. And, it's exciting. Uh, and yeah, there's uh, a lot of films going way back. Uh, there's a lot of old classics, but a lot of it is like th- films from like the last decade or so. Um, I'm in, in the midst of watching a five and a half hour Filipino epic called From What Came Before. And uh, B's new podcast is called All About Ovid, spelled with all O's. <laughs> o- all about Ovid. And uh yeah, it, it's essentially just a conversation between the two of us and what we managed to catch on Ovid this week. Yeah. And that's going to be, uh, it's going to be weekly at first, but, you know, my schedule is about to go rocketing back to something different and unpredictable. Right. So uh, we'll, well, we'll see, we'll see how some, it turns out. We'll make some out. choices in our scheduling and, yeah, you know, but, might but be a few first, changes here and there. The first, uh, few, the first few episodes are going to be on a weekly basis and we're just going to talk about interesting things that we've discovered on Ovid. Please subscribe. Mm. If I, I highly recommend the Screens Margins uh, as a podcast feed. I think um, there is a very specific tendency for film critics and film enthusiasts to, you know, follow their pre-existing passions. Mm-hmm. And uh, as a result, there are there's a myriad, there's a whole giant library of films and filmmakers who barely get talked about at all, if at all. And I think it behooves critics to make the time mm-hmm. to try to introduce people to that. And that there is an entire network dedicated to that is great. And yeah, there might be some people who uh, just don't think that's it for them. If you've ever said to yourself, uh all these podcasts and YouTube shows are just doing the same movies over and over mm. again. Check out stuff like the screens margins because that's where the other stuff is. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's and a that's, great introduction to a lot of it. And off it is, is also a place to find a, a, things that are off of the beaten path. Um, both B and I do credit Dave White to sort of pointing us or at least trying, trying to do his part to point everyone into this direction. Yeah. Uh, Dave White introduced me to filmmakers like Lav Diaz and uh, and other uh, 
much more difficult cinema than perhaps I would have been able to seek out or would have known about otherwise. And yeah. so, yeah, B and I talk, uh, we, we give Dave White a lot of credit for, uh, <laughs> being, being interested in the kind of stuff that's on Ovid. I think that's, uh, mm. I think that's what a lot of great critics can do mm. is not just talk about, or, uh, sort of hopefully elevate or at least illuminate the conversation about cinema, but also to, help people find films they might not otherwise have known about or, or have understood and well enough to appreciate even if they did see them. Mm. If a film critic does that for you, even if it's just one film, let them know. That's what we're here for. Like, that's the dream, basically. If we can, like, help introduce you to a film you might not otherwise have noticed and it becomes, like, a thing you really like or maybe even very special to you, that's the job. That's exactly mm. what we got into this. And so uh, Dave White is absolutely a trailblazer. I do really love him. I think I, he's, I, I, he, he stands in defiantly in the path of the mainstream. <laughs> Which is where critics ought to, I think. <coughs> and we can't Let's, ignore it yeah. because that's what so many people are consuming, that we need well, to discuss we'll, that. We'll but talk like, about it. But in yeah, terms of... We like, need to talk about everything. Yeah, have, yeah. Having... Having refined taste is is a big part of our job, and mm-hmm. I think uh, Dave White has some of the most refined taste. Although um, my wife has uh, jokingly referred to his taste in movies as um, they eat a potato, then the sun goes out kind of <laughs> movies. <laughs> which is uh, specifically referring to the plot of uh, the Bellatar film, The Turin Horse, which yeah. he is a big proponent of. But yeah, that's the kind of movie Dave White <laughs> likes. They eat a potato and then the sun goes out. <laughs> I, I, that's, it's great. It's great. Yeah. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful, uh, he's a wonderful man with wonderful taste. Yeah. Uh, so and, anyway, head on over to the screen's yeah. margins. And if you want to hear more from Dave White, uh, head on over to Linoleum Knife, which is a wonderful podcast as well. They have a Patreon with a lot of exclusive shows. So does the screens margins. Please check that out. Um, they're really cool people. Um, anyway, that's it for critically acclaimed. Thank you everybody for listening and never forget everyone. Yes. Everyone, even you is a critic.